There's no doubt that small businesses are the foundation of our communities. That's why MasterCard has invested in tools to support small business owners as they grow their business. With MasterCard tools and resources, you can increase sales by shortening checkout time, broadening your customer base, and tapping into new opportunities to increase customer loyalty. So get started. Discover all the ways MasterCard can help guide, grow, and protect your business at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, it's Rick Spence. I'm so excited to let you know that the Startup Women podcast, hosted by Startup Canada's Kayla Isabel, is returning to the Startup Podcast Network in a brand new format that really digs down into the challenges facing Canadian entrepreneurs. Beginning in March 2022, the podcast will air every month and feature a woman-identifying founder as well as an industry topic expert. These stories and voices will connect women entrepreneurs to knowledge, advice, and information that digs deep below the surface to help women entrepreneurs overcome the real barriers they face. We believe you'll find these episodes unique and inspiring. If you do, please share with your friends and business allies. You can hear new episodes every month at startupcan.ca. Under the Listen tab, click on Startup Women Podcast. But also, don't forget about me and my guests as we continue to explore every entrepreneur's personal and business journey. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode of the Startup Canada Podcast. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday at 10 a.m. ET to hear news stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Stephanie Lapierre. Stephanie is the founder and CEO of Tealbook, an AI-based supplier data solution that helps clients improve the quality and agility of their supply chains. Stephanie has been recognized as one of the top 100 most influential women in supply chain, and Tealbook has been named a top 50 company to watch by Spend Matters. It's also won Gartner's Cool Vendor Award, and if all that doesn't impress you, Tealbook has now raised more than $100 million in funding. Prior to Tealbook, Stephanie spent 10 years building a successful strategic sourcing and procurement consulting firm focusing on large-scale sourcing optimization projects. Stephanie's mission is to deliver a trusted source of supplier data to an ever-growing e-procurement space. Stephanie, Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. So before we get into what Tealbook actually is, let's just go back to the beginning of your story. How did you get into supply chain? That doesn't strike me as something that, that most people have as an ambition. <laughs> I went downplay supply chain. It's very important. I, I think it's very exciting to be, uh, especially in these times where it's been quite challenging, but uh, definitely an opportunity for supply chain to get a lot more visibility um, and influence business outcomes. But yeah, to your point, it's not something that you grow up and think I'm going to be one day in supply chain. What I grew up knowing is that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew that from a very, very young age. And um, entrepreneurship comes with 
ideas to try to solve problems and having ideas that you can't shake and uh, how, however you poke at it to me, it just made so much sense and there's not enough downside for, for building a company. Uh, my first company um, as an adult and formally uh, sort of a business, because I've done other things when I was younger, but was a consulting firm that was initially aimed to help organization find innovation. So, um, you know, they had maybe a, a business challenge, or it could be a packaging challenge, it could be a commercial challenge, and innovation came through businesses, suppliers, companies that were focused on driving innovation for uh, enterprise. And so my company was called Matchbook, and it was sort of a matchmaking service between organizations, a lot of pharma companies specifically, and looking at suppliers that would bring innovation to help achieve business outcomes. And, um, you know, the process worked incredibly well because it allowed our clients to find innovation, which is very hard to find. There's a lot of suppliers that claim to be innovative, but when you're really focused on solving a business problem, who can help? Um, that business translated to uh, really what's called strategic sourcing. And at the time, procurement, who was known for saving money and often being sort of seen as a roadblock to doing business with suppliers, was really focused on saving. And that created a lot of friction because the business is looking to spend money as fast as possible with the right suppliers. And when you put sort of different goals across these functions, it, it was very difficult to find alignment. And so my, my business starts shifting to building strategic sourcing functions that were bridging the gap between the goals of procurement and, and bringing more value to the business from a strategic perspective. So I, I worked across many large organizations with fairly sophisticated, quote unquote, and large investments and systems and processes and people uh, to manage the buy side. So anything that's procurable spend to companies that are providing products and services to the enterprise. And we're talking thousands to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of businesses, right? In a, in a, in a, the environment of a, of an enterprise. Anyway, so I, I start seeing an opportunity to um, help also companies that were growing really fast. So my consulting business started shifting to these earlier stage companies that were raising a lot of capital and they were spending money really fast because they were launching maybe a first commercial asset, say globally. And so they needed everything. And what I, I saw an opportunity there is that with a clean slate, could we build this procurement function, this buy side of the organization in a way that's... Uh, you know, not so much focus on savings, but focus on value creation, speed, innovation, enablement of people making decisions faster, transparency. So we know how much money we're spending with these supplies and we're able to capitalize on that spend. And what I saw is that as soon as we started introducing software to those organizations, we started creating friction. And I saw the same problem happening very quickly with, you know, new employees coming on board faster, loss of institutional knowledge and a lot of siloed information across the organization very early on. And there was no way to be able to try to dial that back to centralize and having a better visibility and a better way to share data. And so that's, you know, again, it's sort of the entrepreneur journey is like all these opportunities that you see in these gaps that you want to solve for. And for me, it was um, not being able to not do anything about it. I really want to be able to bring a solution to the market. Wow. <laughs> that, 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 that's one of the clearest origin stories I've ever heard. So thank you for that. Um, I'm still a little bit um, unsure about 
how you're fixing things. I mean, obviously a supply chain is, is really just people, relationships, and data. And the data uh, is uh, obviously underlies the whole thing. So there's lots of opportunities to improve things, but how do you actually make the supply of chain more efficient, more agile? Well, supply chain is from, the, the word supply chain comes from forecasting all the way to delivering a good to someone, a consumer business. And I think we're all very acutely aware now of what supply chain and disruption and how it's impacting us personally. And so our technology is more focused on the information about those suppliers. So we're not really going deep into the supply chain because um, there's a lot of workflow and there's a lot of mapping and there's a lot of coordination to get from forecasting to delivering your product. But what we're focused on is information about the suppliers that are servicing the business, that they could be um, providing a service. It could be a training company. It could be a window cleaning company. It could be um, coffee services to direct material, ingredients that, that you actually are core to your product. And so um, what we've done is we've used machines in a way to be able to grab information on every B2B supplier in the world. And so traditionally our clients would say, hey, I have 10 or 20,000 or 100,000 suppliers globally. How do I manage these relationships and capture information about these suppliers so that not only I know that who these suppliers are and where they're physically located and if they meet certain compliance requirements, but even having this consolidated view so you can start optimizing in areas that you need to. Maybe there's areas of risk, maybe there's areas of overspending, maybe there's areas that you're not introducing enough competition. And so our technology is able to um, take the information of a large Fortune 100 company to a mid-sized market. Typically our clients have in the thousands at least of suppliers because it's complex enough. And we're able to turn the light on to these relationships without having to uh, reside to portals and inviting the suppliers to come to multiple systems and then update those systems uh, on an ongoing basis. Because the reality is that most organization and enterprise have very complex software. They've relied so far on those software to capture information from suppliers. But imagine with, with the number of software, with the number of customers, suppliers just don't do it. <laughs> so the software market has sold a really good story is saying, hey, if you adopt cloud-based technology, portal-based software, the suppliers are going to come and they're going to put their information on the software, but it, they don't do it. And so you're always trying to subsidize either spending a lot of effort and money trying to get the suppliers to come, but they have hundreds of portals and they can't care less. Unless they get paid, then it would be an incentive. They would do it once on a very limited scope of information. And then how do you connect the software across to each other? And if you're connecting them to each other, you're assuming that the data in those software is, is good. And the reality is it just isn't. So our clients often hear like portal potties, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If we could fix this master data, we could finally optimize this huge asset that our clients are sitting on, which is, you know, thousands and thousands of relationship that could deliver hundreds of millions of dollars if they had visibility and access and better quality data. So that's really what we're focused on is how do we give them that kind of visibility? And then how do we expand this network of suppliers so that they can uh, take action when suppliers are disrupted and they need to find contingent suppliers that are most similar, that are competitive. Maybe they're looking to relocate their supply base from China to Canada and they're looking for, for local suppliers. Maybe they're looking for suppliers that are more competitive so they can drive 
pricing down, it can increase savings targets. Maybe they're looking for small, diverse businesses or sustainable businesses. And so it's giving them that flexibility of optimizing who they already have under contract, uh, coordinating all these systems so that there's better data flowing, and then giving them access to the, the network of suppliers that can help them achieve corporate priorities. So I'm presuming that all this information was available somewhere, but it might have been in an industry directory, uh, might have been in a book, <laughs> um, might have been in a database that you didn't know existed. And so you're uh, creating a universal access to the universal database, essentially? Yeah, that's the, exactly it. So we, we're, we have thousands of sources where we pull data from and we harmonize it, we make sense of it, and then we create these dynamic profile of every supplier that our customers can connect to and enhance their data. Right. And so you get a fee from the, the, the companies that, that use you? Is that the revenue model? Our clients are, um, so our enterprise customers, which are Fortune, you know, could be Fortune 100 clients, uh, buy a, they, they pay a platform fee and then they have a license fee, then they can integrate our data into their system. So at that point, they would pay per supplier record that are automatically augmenting other systems. For, for suppliers, it's free. Um, so. Um, suppliers have a profile and the nice thing, a lot of the systems in this space rely on, on portals. So they're relying on suppliers to come to a portal and really, we're really proud because our technology reduces the dependency on suppliers to have to come to a profile to be able to get the value out of the data. And so we don't want suppliers to have to pay uh, or have to come to update information. We want that to happen organically and it's happening over time because our clients are asking suppliers to validate records. When suppliers are coming to their tailbook profile, it's 98% complete. It's quite accurate, right? It's more dynamic. It actually becomes more insightful and the suppliers are more motivated, but we really don't depend and we never want to make, you know, suppliers pay to have right. a profile on tailbook. Actually, we even don't want them to pay to get self-certified. So we're able to identify suppliers that are women-owned. Uh, veteran-owned, Aboriginal-owned, LGBTQ, LGBTQ-owned, um, small businesses that would be recognized under that status, which are now being prioritized by a lot of enterprises that are making commitments to spending more with small, diverse businesses. And we allow those, not only we, our machines will find these companies and will find signal to indicate that that business may be a woman-owned business. And then we invite that suppliers to self-certify at no cost. It takes 20 minutes. It's free. It's authenticated. Our clients are starting to recognize that versus just recognizing the certification that, that the suppliers have to pay thousands of dollars and have to upkeep. And, you know, it, it requires a lot of uh, resources, capital and effort. And that's not really fair to small businesses in the first place. So we're really trying to bring more equity and, and access. And that gives our clients access to pipeline of innovation because the innovation typically comes from these small startups, you know, diverse businesses, and uh, you want to open the floodgate to that. What's the competitive situation like? Are, are, are you a pioneer in this field? Are you the first to do this? Are other people nipping at your heels? We're definitely the pioneer. I, I started this company uh, before people could even comprehend how, you know, they would put their data in the cloud in the first place uh, or... Uh, how machines, right, machine learning and AI could help solve this problem. And so, you know, four years ago, we were doing workshops on what is ML, what is AI, you know, how, so we don't have to do that anymore. The market has caught up. Um, definitely, you know, before COVID, I think we were starting to see signs that our clients were failing at these large scale software implementations 
or they're not getting the type of data that they were hoping for, the quality of the data, the access. And if you don't have that, then you're not driving value out of that investment in those software in terms of what you thought you were going to have. Uh, it doesn't help with compliance, people using the software in the way they should be. And so our clients were starting to look at solutions. And when we positioned Tailbook, you know, we had built a technology, but two and a half years ago, we repositioned as the supplier data foundation that powers the buy side digital enterprise that unifies the data externally, internally, unifies the data across system, optimize the suppliers, enable people in the organization to do their job faster. We found product market fit. Uh, but when COVID hit, as you can imagine, suddenly no, the software providers couldn't, couldn't give information at the speed and at the scale that their customers were looking for. So the, the software providers were coming to us, the companies that suddenly it became, you know, the CEOs were asking questions that supply chain or procurement couldn't answer because they didn't have access to that data. Suddenly we started getting a lot more visibility and, and, and data became the new pillar, right? The most important in some way pillar. And so we're definitely, a year ago, we Kearney uh, posted a graph on the you know, future ecosystem of the e-procurement market, and we were the only company in the middle as to be the supplier data foundation, and all the software were around this graph. And so I think that solidified that we were the data foundation. It definitely um, put us as a, as a leader in this space. And now there's more logos in that circle. So a year later, we're already seeing players but they're all portal-based software. And they're actually coming to us to augment the data because they're depending on suppliers to come to their portal to generate value to their clients. So I actually don't think they're data foundation. I think they're, you know, they may be onboarding, they may be compliance driven, they may be risk, they may be supplier data management, but they're not a supplier data foundation. And so our platform, ideally, it just integrates with every single system that rely on suppliers to come to it so that time to value is faster, the data is better, it's um, autonomously maintained, it gets better over time, over time gets more insightful, and it's driving more value out of the investment in the technology stack. Wow. And what's your favorite customer success story? How have you helped one client? You don't have to name them, but if you can name them, that's great too. Um, you know, how you've helped them cut costs, expand the diversity of their supply chain, help them uh, innovate Hi. yeah so i mean there's a lot of examples but two that i can sort of briefly mention um a couple of years ago i was with a client and we're just chatting about you know i was tailbook helping their team with their with their outcome and the chief procurement officer told me a story that someone in the business had said that um that there was a contract coming to renew with a piping company and the procurement person went to the, the stakeholder and say hey this contract is about to be renewed can we go to bid just to make sure that we are able to include additional potential suppliers? And, you know, as you said earlier on, supply chain and, and procurement, it's a lot about relationship. And so that stakeholder pushed back and said, no, there's no other piping company in the world that can deliver this type of piping. And so in normal circumstances, that procurement person would not necessarily have the munition to say anything or influence, and it would be hard to be able to, to change, right? But in this case, they had Tailbook. And so they went into Tailbook, they did a, a quick search, and um, it came up that six companies were known to the industry that were that looked like they could deliver the same type of piping. And so they challenged the business to say, hey, I just looked in Tailbook, there's six other companies. Do you mind if we invite them to bid just to make sure we're able to get as much value 
as possible. And they ended up saving $25 million, right? So we're talking about pretty high impact, right? For just being able to have access to the data to be able to influence a business decision that translates to $25 million in one sourcing event. Uh, so that's pretty powerful. In terms of supplier diversity, I'm super proud of that use case. Obviously, bringing equality to small diverse businesses is really important to all of us. And it's a really nice landing use case because our clients don't have to you know, have heavy implementation. We don't have to be integrated up front. So when our clients are adopting Tealbook, which is a bit of a newer thing, they've never bought data this way, they're looking for a use case where they can have a quick win that gets a lot of visibility. And so when the CEO or the board or the investors are asking, like, what's the diversity spend? What's their ESG you know, goals for this year? And, you know, allowing them to come back with answers and an uplift in what they've reported before can be a massive win. So we had a large bank in uh, the U.S. that came to us to identify if they had missed some small diverse businesses that they do business with, but they didn't capture in their reporting. And that's because maybe a, a large number of suppliers never bothered going to the portal to put their certificate because they have to update 500 others, right? Yeah, yeah. And so our data being able to grab these certificate, unify back to the profile, we took the master data and then within two weeks showed them that they had missed $50 million in additional diverse spend uh, beyond what they had reported the year before. And this is all qualified, certified supplier with the expiration date in their profile, with the link to the certificate if they wanted to validate it. And so that went to the CEO. It went to their sustainability report to shareholders. And not too long after, so they ended up growing with us. So now they have 100 procurement category managers that are using Tealbook to identify more small, diverse businesses, include them in more opportunities. And we're, we're kind of... You know, we've identified potential diverse suppliers that could come and self-certify. So we're giving them a major uplift. But at one point I was speaking at uh, an event of Women Fund Financing. And in that conversation, there's a, a founder of a law firm who said that the same client had reached out to her recently because they had uncovered that they were doing business with her and she was small and diverse. And now they contacted her and said, hey, we now have visibility. We've seen that we've sent you contract and we've been spending money with you for the last few years. Um, we would love for you to come in and speak to other small diverse businesses of what does it take to do business with a company like ours, which is a large bank, and make sure that you scale up because we're going to start shifting contracts to a large law firm to your firm to help you scale. So imagine the impact. Right. I had goosebumps because I'm like, this is bringing visibility to a small law firm who's already been working with them. But now it's going to be life changing for that entrepreneur. It's going to be life changing for employees, for their family, for the community. And that's just because our client had access to this information. So it's, it can be incredibly powerful and it can be life changing. And that's why when we're looking at our vision, like we can advance the world through supplier data. And I fundamentally believe that we can. We've seen a lot of use cases during COVID where we helped you know, our customers secure PPEs really fast that were ISO certified so that they could, you know, the UK government could come back with PPEs that were you know, trusted and high quality and not empty planes. <laughs> like we helped Brooke Brothers identify sources of uh, material to make N95 masks in a record time so that they start producing 100,000 N95 masks faster. And like the examples are, you know, are endless, but those are the power of having access to information. And in this world where information and suppliers and disruption is happening, you know, at the speed that you can't even comprehend, 
you need to have data. You need to have that kind of visibility. And so, you know, we're really proud of what we do. Yeah. What's the secret sauce at Teal Book? Is it that uh, you came up with an algorithm that does a better job of scraping data than anyone else had done before? I think the technology, definitely. It, it, you know, the technology that we've used is was pretty cutting edge. Like when we started building this platform five years ago, like to go in the big wild web and start pulling information and start curating it to understand what makes a B2B company and what does that B2B company do and start translating that into digestible, consumable information that's increasingly more accurate. Like that was pretty cutting edge. And then we started building algorithms to understand what, what makes a supplier similar to, not to another. So that powered our search engine. It allowed our customers to better understand sort of where they had a lot of maybe overlap or not in their supply base. But, you know, I, I remember one of our engineers, because I'm not a technologist, I, I had the business idea, so I had to bring in people to build my vision. And, um, you know, we put so much hype on AI and ML, but when he showed me the architecture of our stack, he showed me this, this world, right? It was this whole slide with all these boxes of things that are important to our business and our platform. And then this tiny little black box in the middle, and that was the AI ML. <laughs> and so it does require the complexity, especially that we're mining data of very large companies in highly regulated markets. We needed to build the infrastructure to do that. But what I would say is that our knowledge of the space and the gap and the expertise that we've had in our company to identify like what is the go-to market strategy to go after this and transform the supplier data market it's what's more unique. Like, yes, it's a combination of all these things, but um, I think it was understanding the problem, seeing the solution, and then leveraging the type of computing power and technology available today to solve this business problem. Right. Fascinating, fascinating story. I, I hope everyone is listening to just how important the supply chain is, how important the, the supplier diversity is um, on a social equity level as well as on a business strategy level as well as on the innovation and and and, and cost cutting levels what can, what can you tell us about the company itself um what kind of a growth rate do you have how many employees do you have how many job openings do you have well, a lot of job openings so uh although i'm i think the audience is are all entrepreneurs yeah they're unemployable don't don't hire them <laughs> Um, so, I mean, the, 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 I, I see our story in a few phases. One was me having an idea and building an MVP to then building a team and then raising capital. And that was an important um, learning for me because and I mentor a lot of women founders, but what I find is that women in particular, and I'm generalizing, but um, tend to, to take on more on their shoulders and tend to take more risk and not hire fast enough and not raise capital fast enough. And so what I think it ends up is that you have better businesses, but they may not get to market or they might not be as successful uh, because the slow start. And that's definitely, that was my profile. Like I did, you know, a year and a half of just basically being me with an outsourced firm when I started. And so that was, you know, the learning. And, and I remember an investor saying like, hey, Lone Ranger, like you can't do this alone. Like you need a team. And at the time I was looking to raise capital and I said, well, I need money to be able to hire the team. He's like, you're not going to get funding if you don't have a team. And so when I think of entrepreneurship, like getting that team, those other individual that complement your skill set up front is so important to be able to show investors 
that you are able to attract talent, that you have complementary skills and giving them the trust that if they're going to put money in your company, that you're actually able to execute. Because if you're just you, that's a lot of risk, right? Especially as a mom of three daughters, like if one of my kids got sick, you know, or do people have the chops to go through this crazy, you know, time consuming and, and, you know, obsession journey uh, that comes with all kinds of challenges. So anyway, that was sort of one of the chapters where, and I was lucky enough to find a CTO at the time and CEO, and we're able to raise our first institutional round. Um, the next level was to build a platform. So knowing now that we could use technology to see the data versus depending on customers and depending on suppliers to come to a portal, that was the big differentiator for us. And so we built the platform and then we had to figure out how to sell it. So the next chapter is sort of, I call it the valley of death because we now had this wonderful technology. We did have early customers who bought in the vision, but our data was not good enough to be called a data company. And we were building workflow to address use cases that seemed like nice to have because our clients were investing millions of dollars in buying source to pay solutions or ERP. And they were so consuming. A lot of them were over budget, lots of frictions and delays which is caused by bad data, by the way, but they, they did not recognize that. And so, and we didn't have the data to be able to be that solution for them either. And so we looked like a nice to have, we could do supplier discovery, we could start doing supplier diversity, we could do supplier data enhancement, but we were not the company that, you know, ultimately would become a multi-billion dollar company. And um, it was almost three years ago now that someone named Matt Palagdari, who's our chief revenue and strategy officer, reached out on LinkedIn and said, hey, you know, I built a company called Acquire that was acquired by Coupa. And I see firsthand the problem that's being faced by these large scale implementations that are failing due to poor data. If you're building what I think you're building, which is this autonomous way to enrich data, you're sitting on a gold mine and that's a single point of failure for all these, you know, these large scale implementation, not working out and the digital transformation. But what I'm reading on your website is that you look like a software company. And so I was, you know, again, it's all about grabbing the opportunity and listening. And so I got the chance to meet him. We align on uh, the vision and how we were going to reposition. It's not a pivot. It was a reposition of Tealbook, And that's when we found product market fit. And since then, you know, this is our third round of funding in two years. So we're able to do a seed extension with fantastic investors. We were still a small team. We were now having to figure out how do we sell this, this new position to the market? Uh, can we identify the use cases that we can start delivering, you know, value soon enough so that we can get revenue and get customers engaged? And so we did that. And then COVID hit. That gave us a massive pipeline of partners and customers so we ended up preemptively raising Series A three quarters ahead of schedule. So that was December of 2020, 2020. And then with that capital, we scaled. So last year, we went from 30 employees to now we're 115, I believe. We've, I've hired executives across all the, the, the functions. So we are now a team of 10 to be 12 uh, uh, on the leadership side. We have grown revenue, again, over 300%, open a lot of new sectors, uh, reduce our sales cycle or net retention, which is our customers buying more of Tealbook is, is above benchmark at 168%. Um, and so all this growth and this, this now proving that we could land a use case, we could have a repeatable, scalable sales process uh, allowed us to say, hey, I think this is 
we're ripe now to raise a bigger round of funding so we can not only accelerate the product roadmap and their data quality, um, but we can also uh, augment the resources behind our go-to market teams. And so that's what we, um, you know, we just, we raised, uh, we've gotten a preemptive term sheet from 10 Coves before we even really kicked off the process. And uh, we ended up raising 50 million US, so 64.5 million Canadian in our last round. And that was just before the holiday. So that was December 20th. It was December. Yeah, yeah. yeah. F- fantastic. So the fact that, uh, and you've got investors from both Canada and the US, some very, very uh, smart people. This suggests that uh, there's a lot of growth yet to come. Yeah, so we're going to be close to 200 um, by the end of this year. And right now it's all about execution, right? I've never thought so much about operations and execution, excellence, cadence, um, our KPIs, staying really focused while still, you know, being acutely aware of the market changes because this market is changing at a, at a really fast pace. And all the seed, like all the foundation that we've layered last year is now putting gas behind it. And still, you know, learning, but we 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 have some some assumptions and some you know things that we did that we've now validated and have data. So the more we have visibility to our own business, and the more we're the smarter we are about where we're investing and making sure that we're focused on where we can get the best outcome. So if all goes well, like I mean, our our target is to get to 100 million in revenue ARR by 2026, and then having the choice to go public. If you know, we want this to be optionality. Um, but you know, we look at Zoom Info as a similar companies in this, the, the marketing and, and sales side, right? Providing customer data to sales and marketing. They can feed that data to a CRM, like a Salesforce. They can also log into Zoom Info to access information about businesses. We see ourselves very similarly on the buy side. So anything that's supplier base related, that's purchasing, finance, compliance, legal, um, you know, supply chain, logistics, all feeds into a company that you do business with. And that's how we see ourselves being in a really strong parallel. I love that you interview yourself, Stephanie. I don't have to ask any questions. You, you, you hit all the high points. It's, you tell great <laughs> stories. So that, 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 that's fantastic. I'm going to have to give back half my pay for this podcast because um, you're doing all the work. Appreciate it. How would you characterize your latest fundraising? Are you beating the bushes and actively um, knocking on doors to get funding or are they finding their way to you? Early days, for sure. I, I, you know, I spend so, I wasted so much time the first round trying to understand fundraising and knocking on doors of of investors that were not even at my stage or (laughs) or didn't even have a fund. I just, anybody that had the title investor, I would reach out to and Part of me is sort of I dive in and learn, um, but I could have done that a little bit more intelligently and, and, and efficiently. And so I think that's one lesson learned for, for entrepreneurs is, you know, make sure that you know the funds that have thesis around your business, that have, you know, that a life cycle of their fund that makes sense. They're at the stage of your company that makes sense. Build relationship with them, you know, as early as you can. Um, I didn't do it that way. I did it the really hard way, but over time, it's not about me. It's not even about, well, it's always about the vision, but it's not so much just about taking a bet on Stephanie and her vision. We have now data. And so showing the type of benchmark that we've been able to achieve in the past year alone. And I remember one of my investors and board members saying like, investors will get on a plane without knowing anything about a company based on their KPIs. If you're above market, 
you, you know, you get investors to trip over themselves and there's so much capital in the market right now. So if you can differentiate yourself with really good metrics, I mean, the money will come. And so, we, you know, we were really, really fortunate in the last two rounds that uh, we had investors that came in before we really kicked off the process. So made it significantly easier and uh, having a great team to be able to go through diligence and um, getting that deal closed, right? Super important. And so, um, you know, I'd say it's never easy. There's, it's definitely um, a stressful time, especially from term sheet that could be a rush, uh, but the end goal is to close that round so that you have the capital to keep going and, and press on the gas. And do you anticipate uh, doing another round or two? Oh, uh, most likely. If everything goes well, we'll most likely be raising again in the fall of, um, you know, this year. And so, and it's to be also appropriate, like what do we need to do right now in product to make sure that we have that flywheel, um, you know, turning faster. And so we're, you know, we're not making that decision yet, but ideally based on our plan, we would be fundraising again in the fall. Right. Can I ask if the company is profitable or does that not matter? Oh God, no. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're investing so heavily, right, in our right. technology and our people. Um, so we're not even close to being profitable, but, um, but efficiencies gain and the size of our market and the growth in our revenue as all the indicators of us. And, and what's important, and because entrepreneurs are listening, um, I find and I learned this from another company, where they're really lumpy in their forecasts and it's okay in the beginning because you're learning about your business, but at some point you need to understand your business so that you can put a forecast and build confidence in your team and your investors. And so last year was very much about that. We were lumpy before, like we would hit a quarter, we would miss a quarter, right? It was, you know, we, um, we were not predictable. And so last year was the focus was on, can we, can we have this velocity of the market coming your way continue can we build to scale? And so all the technology and the people that we put in place and the processes, and then can we, um, can we become predictable? And that was key. Like, do you understand your business and, and hiring really strong salespeople that have the discipline to know how to forecast because you're going to operate against that forecast. And that's how, you know, how much money you're spending, if you're spending too much or not enough to build confidence with investors that if they're going to give you money, if you're predictable and you say, hey, I'm going to triple my revenue by next year, and you show that you've been able to close to forecast quarter over quarter, they're going to give you credit for that revenue. If you're going to, if you're in a fundraise now versus waiting another six months where your valuation would be significantly higher, but you need the money to accelerate that, that, um, that revenue, um, I think it's always really important to, um, to build that predictability. And so that's, that was the focus. It continues to be. And, and if we decide to go public, that's going to be even more important, right? How we're able to forecast and predict our business. Just in, in, in thinking through your story, I guess one of the questions that I had was, how did you get AI talent early on before you really had the business model or any hope of revenue? Um, how were you able to acquire uh, the, the, the AI skills and machine learning skills that you needed in order to build, the, to, to build this platform? I think you have to, like AI is such a big term, right? And there's so many things you can do and solve. So I think having a problem that is focused enough and interesting and complex enough for someone to be excited about, right? For us, we're using data to improve, to, we're, we're, yeah, we're using technology 
to solve for a very spe specific problem is the poor quality of supplier data that cripples the buy side of the industry. And so um, that's complex. It's not an easy problem to solve. And so if you want smart people that want to challenge and know enough about technology to apply it to a problem, it becomes increasingly exciting to them, especially as they're seeing the proof points. And even within that problem, there's endless opportunities. So it's even hard within solving one problem with AI that you still have to not get distracted because it opens a lot of use cases and opportunities to expand. Um, so I think it's it's giving you know focus to challenge, and then you know how can technology be applied to that challenge in a compelling way. The other thing is that doing good for the world, right? For us to be able to open opportunities for small diverse businesses, which is are the backbone to our economy. Um, they impact innovation, like startup companies, and then sustainability. ESG is a big focus of ours this year. Is how do we get, how do we capture certification and signal around any of the ESG requirements? So that's another thing that we can help our customers having clean data for clean future, right? If you have better data, you're able to uh, invest with companies that are doing good for the world and our future. And that's really impactful. So those are, I think those are two important things. If you're just building a company because you want to make a lot of money or you want to help large companies make a lot more money, you know, it could be compelling, but if you're doing something good for the world, I think talent are looking for different right now. They're looking for different types of companies who care about the people who are authentic, who um, give space to think and space for people to connect with their families and be challenged and grow. Like there's all these complexity in talent today. And so if you can give them something that they're proud of and that they feel that they're contributing to our future, I think that's just a, a really, you know, it's a really compelling proposition. Right. I mean, this is such an exciting story and there's so many ways things can go and the industry is changing so fast. And as you say, I mean, the ESG uh, certifications are going to be a, a universe in themselves. So, so many opportunities. You're riding a whirlwind. You said at a conference recently that that your 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 job description changes month by month because your role is changing so fast as as CEO. So I'm just curious, how do you navigate this? How do how do you keep making sure that you're focusing on the right things that and and that you have the skills or the talent around you to get those things done? One, I think you have to be aware of your skill set and your gaps. <laughs> so no one's good at everything. And so I don't have an ego on, you know, and I'm pretty, um, yeah, self-aware, I think it, it would be the word. And, um, and I know my superpowers and where I can add the most value to the organization. So I have tried to complement my skill set with really smart people that, can fill those gaps. And at every round, I always go through this, this journey. It's so always about four to six weeks, which it's, it comes with a shadow of accountability. Like people are giving you millions of dollars to grow a company and there's a high risk and there's a lot of, you know, bombs, <laughs> grenades that fall, you know, in many places. And so um, I do think that, that every time I close around going through this sort of soul searching like, how do we use this capital? What have we learned before? How can I be better for the organization? And in this round, I actually took a personal coach, like an executive coach, because I wanted him to talk to all my board members, talk to my executive, talk to employees that have worked with me for a number of, um, of months or years to get perspective. 
I just to understand like how do they see me succeed? What do they expect of my role in the company? Where do they see that I have gaps so that and, and nothing that I've seen so far in the feedback that I don't I agree with all of it. And now it's deciding like are there things that I really want to change? It's probably too time consuming for me to try to get better at these things. I could hire people that are better than me. And then the things that I'm good at is how do I improve? So, so one example of that, I have a lot of ideas, right? I'm always listening to the market and, you know, it could be incredibly distracting to my team if I'm throwing new ideas all the time, because they right. don't know how to react to it. They don't know if it's important, should they stop what they're doing? And so how do I filter these ideas so that it's validated, it's prioritized, it's not distracting, right? It's protecting the rest of the organization. And so that's how I'm looking at like, okay, how do I do that? What are the tools? Who are the people that I can channel this through? How do we validate that some of these ideas are in fact important because we don't wanna miss a market opportunity or get you know disrupted in our very early stage. And so you know, that's one of a few examples of things that I need to work on. And um, you know, my goal is to grow as fast as the organization needs me to grow. And, um, and I'd love to be able to take this company public one day. Fantastic story. And uh, congratulations to you for all the work you've done in your team to get to this point where the opportunities are so huge all around you. Any final thoughts based on your journey for uh, business owners listening to this podcast? What's, what, what's the one piece of advice you'd love to give them to help them improve their business and get on a positive track? You know, I, I, and I'm maybe addressing this more to female founders, but I think generally is that I thought in the early days, other people knew better than I did. Right. So when I was looking for people, I was very quick to give away responsibilities and decisions. And what I can say is that, you know, looking at all the founders who have built all these, these successful tech companies, they're not different than you. <laughs> They've done it. So what, what makes you think that, that you can't do it or someone else would know more about your business than you do? Like you're the one who's most passionate. You're the one who has the resiliency and took the risk to do this in the first place. And so don't lose that. And I'd say, don't give, uh, don't give responsibility too quick to someone else because you think they've done it because your environment, your timing, your opportunity, the problem that you're solving, the team that you're going to be building will be different than what someone else would would have gone through. So that was a tough learning for me initially, and it was it's it's a lot harder to take things back. It's a lot easier to have sort of proof points and then give more responsibility to other people. And at the end of the day, trust your instincts. And it took me too long, almost in a way, to know that hey, I'm actually, I know my business. My instincts are pretty bang on, so I have to rely more and more on them and make faster and better decisions. And so uh, I think trusting your instincts is super important and, and go for it. You're doing this, like don't do it half. Don't do it with being scared that if you spend too much here, it's like, just go for it. And if you have that mentality, then if you're not gonna go for it, then, then don't do it. Like just go, <laughs> like do whatever it takes and always assume intelligently, but always assume that things are going to go as planned and where you're investing will materialize. Otherwise, you're gonna you're gonna hold back, and it's not gonna get the type of outcome that you're gonna hope for. So, you know, go for it, shoot for the stars, and uh, you'll be really successful. Right. I love your message of both ambition and confidence, because sometimes they're the same thing, but uh, you, you've really articulated very well the difference between them, and making sure that 
that people don't give away the store and, 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 and believe in themselves. Fantastic advice. We've been talking with Stephanie LaPierre, the founder and CEO of Toronto-based Teal Book. You're going to hear a lot more about Teal Book over the coming years. So remember that you, you heard about them here first. Uh, Stephanie, congratulations on your success. Good luck. And we will keep track of you and talk to you again before long. Sounds good, Rick. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Stephanie. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles, and it's made possible by the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence.